Hi everyone, this is two-time World Poker Tour champion, Jonathan Little, and I want to tell you about my training site, PokerCoaching.com. Poker Coaching is the place to be if you want to increase your poker skills and learn to crush the games. It's the only place to quickly increase your win rate with active learning, so you can achieve your full poker potential without having to hire an expensive coach. Right now, podcast listeners can score a free membership by visiting pokercoaching.com slash cardplayer and get access to top training tools like our interactive hand quizzes, our 7, 14, and 30-day challenges, and a roster of elite coaches such as Matt Affleck, James Romero, Burt Draftganger-Stevens, Michael Acevedo, and dozens of others. Again, that's pokercoaching.com slash cardplayer to get your free membership right now. By now, you've heard about Global Poker, one of the fastest growing online card rooms available in the US and Canada today. So what's stopping you from trying it out? Global Poker is a safe and secure social poker site that uses their own patented sweepstakes model. Signing up is easy. You can use Google, Facebook, or just an email address. You can always play for free on Global Poker, but you can also buy gold coins for additional play, which will earn sweeps coins that can be redeemed for real cash to a bank account, Skrill account, or even as a gift card. Get a free 5,000 gold coins when you sign up right now at GlobalPoker.com. Poker Stories is an audio series that features casual interviews with some of the game's best players and personalities. Each episode highlights a well-known figure in the poker world and dives deep into their favorite tales both on and off the felt. Hello and welcome to Poker Stories, a podcast brought to you by Card Player, the Poker Authority, and hosted by me, Julio Rodriguez. This is episode number 145, featuring Laura Eisenberg. Now, Laura has been impressing many players on the circuit over the last few years with her play. In 2019, she won a WSOP circuit ring, and then in 2021, she took down the Ladies' Championship event at the World Series of Poker for her first bracelet and a six-figure score. Then in December of last year, she managed to make it to heads-up play out of a huge field of 5,430 in the WPT Prime World Championship event banking $481,000 for her deep run. That's a lot of success for someone who doesn't even play all that often. Laura's poker schedule is limited by the fact that she has a day job running her own radiology practice. And poker is also not her only interest. Laura spent her time in college as a bit of a pool hall shark. And then she turned her attention to competitive skydiving where she holds a world record which you'll hear all about in this interview. Anyway, that is enough intro. Here is my conversation with Laura Eisenberg. I'm here with Laura Eisenberg. Laura, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. You're fresh out of the Bahamas? Uh, yeah, not for a poker, but uh, just there for a family trip. It was pretty awesome. So oh, okay. I was about to say, there's the, a lot of the poker world made their way over there for some events. So you, you yeah, that's just get getting poker, started. Huh? No, no. Well, we actually played a little family poker, completely different game, but uh, good fun. Was there a lot of family poker growing up? Not at all. No, I didn't start playing poker until I was in my 30s. Um, I'd never played poker at all until I saw it on TV. Oh, wow. uh, 
Yeah, I was like a PC gamer, and then I happened to like catch a commercial for probably Poker Stars or whatever was happening back then, Full Tilt, and I was like, whoa, people are playing games for money on the internet? Let me learn how to do that. So I started learning how to play poker for that reason. I want to get to that story, but first, what's this family game you guys play? Is, is it Hold'em, or is it... Oh, yeah, yeah, we were just playing some fun, just a goofy Hold'em, to, something to do at night. All right, so you, you've infected the whole family, huh? They all <laughs> caught the bug? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay, so let's go back. Did you uh, did you grow up in Silver Spring, Maryland? No, I grew up in Ohio and then um, went to college and med school in Milwaukee and then came out, actually went to North Carolina for my medical training and then uh, moved up to Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. And, uh, so you're a little bit all over the place. Okay, so tell me about yeah. growing up in Ohio. How long were you there and uh, what were your interests? What were you getting into? Sure, sure. So I grew up um, in northern Ohio in a town called Elyria. And, um, you know, it was just, I was just there till I was 18. Um, we were in a small-ish town of like 60,000 people. And, um, you know, so not not a whole lot to tell from back then. I was never like particularly good at sports or anything like that. So it was, um, I was in band and uh, that kind of stuff. Oh, what but, instrument uh, did you play? I played clarinet, which clarinet. is a really nasty instrument until you, <laughs> until you get <laughs> half decent at it. Yeah, there's a there's a steep learning curve on that one. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I'll, so okay, so w were you gaming back then, or was that? Um, I, well, I mean, I'm 54, so yeah, so I was around as computers were evolving, <laughs> essentially. So like I was around for the early days that were text-based games, and then you know like multi-user online groups that were text-based and that kind of goofy stuff, um, and graphics were all evolving. So like I was into it kind of from the beginning. Um, I'm only 38, but I, you know, I was there for Oregon Trail. <laughs> so there you go. I remember. <laughs> yeah, no, there was Zork and, uh, you know, Bard's Tale and a bunch of, like, you know, goofy early games where we were mapping stuff on graph paper, like super so nerds. You were an early adopter then. Yes, yes. And Were uh, you always uh, techno technically minded? Um, I guess so. I mean... Like, there wasn't much to be technically minded about until, you know, com computers really became, like, home computers became a thing. Um, but, you know, that, like, right away it was like, oh, wow, you know, you can disappear into a whole other world with computer games. And I like that. So. So was the plan to go to the big city, Milwaukee, and study medicine right away? Or did you discover that while you were there? No, no, I always wanted to be a doc. And, um, but like, I didn't, wasn't sure where I was going to go. And then, um, they had just started these things where you could, uh, do college and med school in either six years or seven years. And so I, uh, matched into a program in Milwaukee that was seven years. So you cut out a year. Um, and I started out in surgery after med school and did a year of surgery, realized that wasn't for me, switched to radiology. Um, and that was four years of radiology plus a year of fellowship down in North Carolina, and then I moved up to the D.C. area. That's a lot of schooling, that's for sure. you got to be in it. What, what was it about <laughs> surgery that didn't click for you? Was there, was there like an incident? or? <laughs> no, no, it's just mainly the lifestyle. So I was... I was very like my main interest were um, was gastroenterology kind of stuff. So like um, and that lifestyle and surgery is pretty rough. Um, 
So whereas in, you know, in radiology, like we, we work very intensely when we work, uh, but you're kind of on when you're on and you're off when you're off um, and you're not just sort of on call all the time. And um, it's just a much better lifestyle. Like a firefighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For, for a little less life, a little less risk, but yeah. Okay. So for those, you know, who, who are uh, ignorant like me and Googling, what does a radiologist do? Uh, early this morning. <laughs> um, essentially, you're, you're taking you're you're an expert at taking pictures of the insides of people's bodies and interpreting them. We don't take them, right? So there's there's technologists who do the acquisition. Um, so you you know if you break your ankle and you go to the hospital, there'll there'll be an X-ray tech who's the one who takes the pictures and then you know turns them in to be read. Um, if you get a CAT scan or an MRI or an ultrasound, it's a, it's a tech or, you know, a person who does the acquisition of the images. And then the radiologist is the one who's reading all of the studies and interpreting them and getting the results to the other physicians. Right. So. You're the one in the TV show who's holding it up to the light. No, that's the actor who's holding the x-ray up backwards. <laughs> Uniformly, right, right, right. they're holding it up backwards, and so I'll be sitting there with my wife. I'm like, it's the dumbest. And she's like, I know. But, yeah. Oh, it's so tilting. It's, I, I feel the same way whenever I watch like any poker scene in any TV show ever. I, they always make some dumb statement. You're just like, really? Yeah, they're not even playing for table stakes or... Five of a kind. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it's, it can be cringy, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a shot of the opening shot of Scrubs. I think um, they got the thing backwards. They always have it up backwards, or they make a silly statement about something. You know, going to the operating room—that's something that gets done in radiology or whatever. But it's it's better not to know sometimes. Uh, were you good at school? Uh, yeah, you don't kind of get through med school unless you're decent at uh, school. That's <laughs> well, you want it, right? You know, like. Yeah, I mean, it's really. I mean, honestly, I, I don't think that you have to be incredibly smart to get through med school. You have to just be willing to do the work. Um, I mean, I, I, honestly, I think that that's true about most things. Um, you know, there's people that are naturally, you know, gifted in certain ways. Some people might have really great memories, or they might have this and that, but. It, you know, the person who's, in, who's willing to just put their head down and do the hard work the most is going to be the one that usually does, you know, either as well or better. Right, but it's not like you were just studying all the time. What's this about skydiving while you were in med school? Uh, well, that was after med school. Um, okay. Actually, when I, was, when I was in college in med school, I used to be a competitive pool player. Um, so that was my outlet back then. Oh, and, you're uh, not the only, you know, you, Daniel Negreanu, Nick Shulman. That makes sense. That makes sense. I didn't know that about Nick. Um, but yeah, oh, no, I used to sharp. play. Uh, Nick and John Hennigan. Nice. On some tables for sure. Yeah. So I used to play a lot in college mainly. And then in med school, I didn't really have as much time. Um, and, you know, I always knew I was going to skydive, but I knew I didn't have the time or money when I was a student. So I waited till I was a resident and I had no time, but a little tiny bit of money. Hold on, before we get to skydiving, tell me more about these these billiard days. Were you hustling people? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean there was a little bit of that. Like I didn't have much money to be gambling with back then, but you know, in general, like people would play for small amounts of money, and that was great. So that was a way to make a little extra money. Um, and then I played collegiate uh, competitions. So I came in like I think fourth or third a couple years in a row at the collegiate nationals. Uh, for billiards when I was in school 
Um, and that was, that was fun. But like around um, Milwaukee, like pool is super popular because it's an indoor activity that you can do, you know, even when the weather's crappy. And so I was on a guy's um, pool league and I was the first woman in Milwaukee to be on a men's pool league. And that caused a few waves, but uh, <laughs> it was really, it was really fun. Breaking barriers. Yeah. You, you got to imagine that somebody who wants to be a surgeon, at least at that time, would also be good at billiards because, you know, got to have those steady hands, right? Hand-eye coordination for sure is definitely helpful. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so uh, you're done with med school and then all of a sudden somebody invites you skydiving? No, actually, I mean, I just always knew I was going to do it. And, yeah, what happened was somebody I knew, maybe one of the nurses when I was an intern, said they knew there was some guy who was an anesthesia resident who wanted to go skydiving, and would I go on a blind date? I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So I like met this guy on a blind date to go skydiving, and uh, the skydiving was a keeper, the guy not so much. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's how it started. What was the first experience like? I'm assuming you have to, you have to go with the instructor on that one, right? Um, yeah, I did a tandem. Um, you know, there's you, you can do AFF accelerated free fall where you have to go through the whole ground school so you're able to handle a parachute emergency if it happens and all that stuff. Or you can just go do a tandem where they're they're dealing with all of that and you're more or less along for the ride. Um, and so that's what I did. And you know, it's just I mean, it's such a trip. Like your awareness is so little. You know, you leave the airplane and. There's just this rush of cold air and like crazy and you can like see the world in 3D and you're flying and then like there's a video person and you're smiling and you're waving and then suddenly there's a parachute, you know, and um, <laughs> actually they let us pull the ripcord. But, uh, you know, and then being under the parachute was really neat. And, you know, immediately I just wanted to go back up and, and do it again. And, uh, and then, so I just started, you know, I started jumping a whole bunch uh, then. No. There was no shaky knees on the way up the first time? No you know, fear. it's funny. Well, it's funny. I was less nervous the first time than the second time. And the reason was that the first time our whole plane was all tandems. And I was the first, my, my instructor and I were the first ones out. And so when you're actually the one uh, doing it, you don't get this sensation of falling. You know, it's like super windy, but you just get this sensation that you leave the airplane and you're flying. The next time, I actually did the same day. I went back up. I'm like, I'm going to do it again. And I went right back up. The next day? And, no, the same day. The same I went right, day. Oh, yeah, I, went right, I went right back up. And uh, this time, I was going to be one of the last ones out. And you see all the people in the door. And it's like, ready, set, go. And it's like, bam, they're gone. And you're like, holy crap. And that made me nervous. Yeah. So <laughs> they just crazy. immediately sucked out of a plane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it looks much more intimidating to watch it than it is to do it. And then what about the first time you had to do it yourself, like take the step yourself? Yeah, I mean, by then, I mean, I was still like, you're nervous. So with, with the program I did, you did five tandems and then you did four. You did a whole ground school where you learn how to do, deal with parachute emergencies. And then you have four jumps where it's you and one instructor. So they're like holding on to you at first and then having you learn how to fly and, you know, go backwards and forwards and sideways and how to do flips and stuff like that so that you're like reasonably stable. Um, and you know, and then after that nine, those nine jumps, you can jump with somebody who's not holding you, you know, or, you know, or did, but just to practice. Um, and that was, you know, that was it. And then you're, you're, you're like still super naive, but you're, <laughs> you're on your way and you're learning as you go. Have you always been a thrill seeker? Is this uh what other activities had you been up to? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I know. I don't know that. I mean, that's obviously the big one, but, um, you know, I've always liked, you know, like being in amusement parks and, and doing all of that kind of stuff. That was always fun. And, um, you know, I eventually skydiving for me became more about an, an outlet for competition um, because I was on different teams competing. And it'll be really hard to explain how that works without being able to show you um, videos. But um, but yes, but that's really it's very physical. It's very mental. And that got me really on the path of, you know, competition again, having not lost that outlet, not playing pool anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was the big competitive outlet for me all the so way up I, until I found pool. So I had a competition in my mind. It's like synchronized swimming. It kind of is, except it's it's very physical. So you're flying vertically over people and you know moving people from here to there, and you're doing it in a timed event um, with a video person videoing it, and you have to get through a sequence as fast as you can. Um, and the sequences can be complicated too. Sometimes you're doing mirror images, so you'll go through a sequence in one direction, and then it's flipped you, and you're having to go back through the moves in the other direction, like a mirror image, that kind of Got stuff. It. So okay. yeah, so it's. Um, so it's mentally challenging as well as physically challenging. And then it's just, you know, being on a team with other people, you know, there's all the challenges that work, come in around that. That's different with poker. You know, you're, you might have people that you study with and do stuff like that, but at the end of the day, it's pretty much a solo, you know, event once you're on the felt. And so it's right. different, kind of like pool in that way. Can you talk about this world record that you have? Um, yeah, so the, I mean, there's a couple, so we did, I, we still have the same, the women's world record, which is I think 151 people we did, um, but the current world record largest formation is 400 people. It's going to be very hard to beat, not because it's so hard to do from a skydiver standpoint, it's hard to get the planes to do it. So we... Right. you have to have a lot of planes pretty close to each other. Well, you either have to have a lot of planes or you have to have really big planes, which is ideal. So we had the Thai government, the king of Thailand. Um, it was the 50th anniversary of his ascendancy to the throne. And so it all got set up as this like royal sky celebration. So we made it so all the colors, were, it looked like the Thai flag unfolded um, with the colors and all of that. So he basically just loaned us five C-130s to use for three weeks. You know, the cost of which, of course, is phenomenal. None of us could afford our share and didn't. Um, you know, we just paid our airfare to get to Thailand and some small amount for the hotel room. And then, you know, we were just there. We were doing five jumps a day out of C-130s. Uh, and after 13 attempts, uh, we built it. And it was it was really awesome. It was really amazing. It's the largest thing that's ever been over the earth. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What crazy is life you've lived. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was a really, it was a really crazy event. I mean, the only like regret I have about it was like, I was in Thailand for three weeks. And I didn't get to see that much of Thailand. I got to see one town, Udon Thani, which is a town of about 100,000 people. That's where a U.S. airbase is. And that's where we based ourselves out of. But, um, you know, I had actually set up in Bangkok when we arrived. I had set up this really cool, like, evening cruise with a whole show and dinner and all this stuff. And my plane got delayed. Uh, actually, it was my plane getting from Washington, D.C. to New York. That was, of all things, United botched that up. And yeah. I missed my plane. So I was stuck for 24 hours. And I missed this, like, whole thing I had set up that these people had fun doing and another tour I had set up, too. But uh, I got to see some temples and do a tour like that in Bangkok, which was neat. And get to we got to meet a lot of different people, Thai people, just, just being in the town for so long, which was really neat. 
but uh, you know, it's, I need to get back and really see the country more. It was gorgeous. Yeah, the bird's eye view is is nice, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it you was. You got to see it, uh, you know, on foot. Right. Yeah, I think our craziest thing was, you know, the thing with these large formations is that. Um, you know, it's obviously there's some risk involved exiting C-130s, which are going pretty fast. Um, and then there's some risk involved building it, you know, the formation itself. But the biggest risk is in is figuring out how to get 400 people separated safely so you don't end up with any parachute entanglements, that kind of thing. Right. You we, have to, like, eject at uh, different times. Yeah. So what we do is, you, you know, you basically have an outer wave of people that leaves at the highest altitude and then another wave and another wave. And then instead of just everybody just scattering and going out all, every which way you have these groups. So like I led a group of people like flock of birds. Right. And so I led it. And so these people would all follow me and we'd all stick together from like 7,000 feet down to like 3000 feet. And then we'd all separate there and then open up there. So each little, you know, flock of birds is going in a completely separate direction as far away as possible. Right. And, uh, Reduce so, the risk of entanglement. and Exactly. And my group that I was leading, we were always tracking directly over the city of Udantani. So you'd see people like sunning themselves by the pool and hanging out and uh, all this crazy stuff. And then you were opening up in a different place every time with not that much time. You're at 2000 feet. So you fairly quickly have to figure out where you're going to land. And it's in a city. You know, so most of us were landing in the backyard of this school and then this ambulance like would randomly pick us up and take us back to the airbase because we're pretty far away. And uh, on one time it's like, whoa, we're in a completely different area. So when we opened up, I'm like, man, I guess, okay, there's a green patch over there. I'll go over there. And when I got closer, I realized there's this huge vertical net. I'm like, what the heck? And I realized it was a driving range. So they have like the huge net. So I like barely made it over this net and inside this driving range and landed. And uh, one other guy had followed me over there and the two of us landed there. And then the people, they don't, they didn't speak any English, you know? So we're like trying to say, explain, it's like, you know, we're hangar 57, hangar 57. They're like, I, you know, I don't know. And they gave us a Coke and like, we're drinking a Coke and hanging out. And then some dude shows up in a motorcycle with a sidecar and they point, like, get in the motorcycle, and we're like, okay, like, either we're going to be in the sex slave trade, or maybe we'll go somewhere. <laughs> and, and the guy drives us around this Thai market, pointing and showing everybody that he's got skydivers in his motorcycle. And then he takes us back and drops us back off at the driving range again. And like, <laughs> you thought he was helping, or maybe I know, right? and he was just showing exactly. you off. And then, and then eventually somebody's like, here, you get in the back of this pickup truck. And I'm like, oh, this is the one. This isn't going to be good. But we'd like hop in anyway, lay down, and then eventually we ended up somehow back at the place. But uh, that was just nuts. So, That's crazy. Yeah, Any that's scary crazy. situations in the air? Um, you know, there were a lot of scary situations exiting the C-130 in that um, you were going across in rows of four. And, you know, it's a big airplane, so they can't slow down that much. So unlike a regular smaller skydiving plane um, that can slow down to like 90 knots, they to keep flying, these things need to be going like 130 knots. And so um, when you go in these rows of four, for a second, there's nothing. And then you hit this blast of air, you know, once the plane is no longer blocking the wind and people get tossed, you know, unless you're perfectly presented to the wind, you can get tossed to the right or to the left and into people. So like one guy, you know, if you put your arms out, one guy got a shoulder fracture dislocation from having his arms out and somebody hit him. So I was exiting the airplane. Just, I would just ball up in a little ball 
and just like watch this like <laughs> vortex toilet bowl of people in this carnage down below and try to stay out of it. But uh, you know, we had a, we had some accidents. Uh, one guy broke his pelvis, had to have a big surgery, um, and there were some other you know types of accidents and things that happened. I mean, nobody died in the event, which was good. But obviously. Um, but yeah, I didn't have any close calls personally on that event, which was uh, good because you know we were kind of far out there. Man, it, talk about really diving headfirst into something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're and you went for it. Right. Yeah. When you're closing in on something, so like when you know I was one of the people in the back, which is really the front of the C-130. So all these people leave before you. So by the time you leave, the formation that's building is way down below you. And so you have to dive head down at it. So you're going like 200 miles an hour at something that's going like 120. So you're closing in pretty fast on the thing and you have to, um, you know, slow down at the right time and so that you don't go below it. It's very hard to get back up if you do. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, it just takes some discipline and awareness and practice. I think everybody there had thousands of jumps. There were no, like, new people or anything. But um, it definitely has a, a different level of risk than a lot of other things in skydiving. Okay. All right. So, you, so meanwhile, you're, you know, opening up a successful practice in Maryland. And, <laughs> well, uh, I started out practicing uh, and joined a group. Yeah. And um, that had already been in practice for a long time. Okay. And then, uh, so... When did poker come into the picture? So um, I got married, moved to D.C., and I would say 2003, maybe? I think the you know the moneymaker thing had happened, obviously, because poker was, like, all over the Internet. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I was just watching the news and then saw that come on, and I was like, you know, well, you know, I've got, like, a whole Alienware computer set up in the basement that I play games on and stuff. And I'm like, well, this is stupid. You know, I'm playing games for free, and I could be playing games and make money. So Quick sidebar, what was your, what was your game of choice? Um, oh, for before, before poker? Yeah. I liked first-person shoot. Like, I would say first-person sneakers. <laughs> you know, like, I liked Thief was probably one of my favorite games. Um, but I liked a, a lot of the ones that are sort of Dungeon and Dragon-esque, you know, like Arena and that whole series was really awesome. Uh, but then I, got, I started getting into some of the first-person uh, shooters, like Call of Duty and that kind of stuff, as that started coming around. But once things got to be console, I was kind of phased out of it by then. Because um, I really liked PC-based games better because I just felt like you know you have this whole keyboard um, of stuff is a lot easier and you know now they have even many you know the, the real gamers I actually have a gamer keypad that I use for my radiology work just because you can quickly do a lot of the keyboard uh -huh. shortcuts and uh, it works really well for what I do but um, but yeah I was kind of out of it by that point okay so then you discover hey these people are playing for real money yeah, but like nobody knew what was going on back then, right? So there were a few books, you know, there was Super System, and then there was the Sklansky books, and um, and then of course, uh, oh, the tournament poker uh, books from uh, Dan. Um, oh, Harrington on hold. Harrington, right? Harrington's books, right? So so I got those, read those, and then there were some books just on cash games that were out, and and more started coming out as I started getting into things. So I was just you know reading all those things and trying to learn, you know, what to do and started playing online. Like it was paradise poker and full tilt and, and stars. And then, 
So then my husband at the time and I, we went up to Atlantic City, um, did some trips up there and played games. And, you know, that was pretty fun. And somewhere along the way, I, I stumbled on um, tournaments. And I was like, whoa, I like this a lot better. Like, it's a story. You know, there's like, and it changes throughout the whole thing. It's not just the same all the time where you like, you have a, the same about amount of chips. And then right. if you lose them, you just buy again. And then you have the same amount of chips. It's like, this was just so different. And I really liked that. So I started getting into playing charity tournaments around um, DC. And then eventually we started getting casinos in Maryland. And so I started playing those as well. And WPT had WPT bootcamp back then. And so I did a couple of those and that was super helpful. Um, they did a really great job of laying out, you know, a simplified framework that would keep you from getting too much in trouble and basically allow you to be a winning player. Um, and so that was a really great way to be able to have that as the base framework and then build skills from there. Was there any doctor games going on? Um, you mean like people hanging out and playing like yeah, home, home games. games and stuff? Not, I'm, there no doubt were, um, not that I got invited to, um, I eventually got like, I don't know, like maybe f five or seven years ago, I had been in a, involved in a home game or two. Um, but you know, when we have casinos, then it hadn't been that much of a thing. Um, but there's still, there's some juicy games around DC for sure. Right. Right. So the casinos come into the picture and all of a sudden you have something much closer to work, to home. Mm -hmm. uh, is it true you, you work a week on, one week off kind of thing? Yeah, I currently do. And I'm actually cutting back. Um, so in April, I'm going to work one week on and two weeks off, which will let me play more and uh, do some more travel and stuff. So that's uh, that's my progress, semi-progress towards retirement. Right, right, right. So so basically, that's your, your window to get on the circuit. And you can kind of... You know, yeah, it, it sort of is. Like, I want to spend more time with my wife and things as well. So I'm not going to just, like, be on the road all the time and, like, never be home. But, um, you know, the trouble with one week on, one week off is that, you know, half the time you're working. And then the other half of the time you want to spend time with your spouse who works during the week, you know. And so I end up not playing even the local tournaments as much just because then yeah, yeah, it's hard. So yeah. this this will make all of that a lot easier. and. I'm pretty excited about it. But when was the the first time you know you started taking it a little bit more seriously? You noticed like a, a shift. Uh, yeah, I know you you had some results going back. A lot of local Maryland events um, mm -hmm. at a uh, National Harbor, stuff like that. When when did the did you flip the switch? Start studying harder. I know you. I think you worked with Jonathan a little. Um, I did some. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I've worked um, with Alex Fitzgerald some. You know, but a lot of stuff is I just kept, you know, reading and learning like throughout, you know, more and more books uh, kept coming out and then websites, you know, started coming out and, um, you know, and sites you could join and learn from. And, you know, I'm pretty I'm kind of a FOMO person when it comes to poker educational materials. So like every time somebody would come out with a new course, I'd get that course, you know, and then just blast through it. And yeah. you know, and read it, and learn, or a new book would come out. I'd get had to have it and like read it, and uh, you know. And so, you know, that's I think one thing that going through med school helps with is just that, you know, you become a very good learner and you become a pretty disciplined person about being willing to um, put in the time. Um, but I would say my game really took off when I started working with Ape Styles um, the most. So there was. Um, 
Elevate was the um, the group that was a smaller group of people that was working uh, with him, and um, and we had some other coaches as well that were part of Elevate. But this is, that, this is uh, John Van Fleet, one of the highest mm-hmm. earning online players ever. I think he's the highest earning online player of he's all time. Definitely up there. This yeah. Sure. He's amazing, and he's like, and such an absolutely wonderful human being. So he's a good friend, and so I started working with um, him back in 2017. And you know, the idea was it was going to grow and be this big site, but it just didn't turn out to be the case because people at that time weren't spending that kind of money. It was like, know, it was like $300 a month, and people were not doing that that much then. And uh, so it ended up being a small group of us working with him, and he was doing crazy stuff because I mean, he was like playing 25 K's online and like live streaming on a zoom thing with us with no delay. <laughs> so we were watching yeah. him stream with just us, you know, and uh, that was the level of trust that he had with us. But, you know, I just learned so much working with him and just being around top level players and being able to hear their thought process and understand how they think about the game that like you can't put a price on it. And that's what now when he moved over to BBZ, those of us that have been in Elevate moved over to BBZ as well. And, you know, learning through those coaches really continued the progress in my game. Cause I think Jordan is amazing and he is so good at articulating his thought process. Like I could just listen to him talk about poker endlessly because he's so precise in the way that he thinks and talks um, and, you know, we get amazing ICM training in BBZ as well. And, uh, cause Yargo is, is just great. And now they've just recently gotten a whole bunch of new coaches, who, you know, so there's, um, things are really growing there, but that was a big part of, um, my game taking off for sure. Yeah. Shout out to BBZ and, uh, and John, I, I had him on the podcast. Great guy. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's really what separates the top players these days is the ability to do the work away from the table and Put in the time, no matter how monotonous or boring it is, and and it doesn't have to be, but you know it is a grind, and obviously you're built for it. So, yeah, it's you know I think sometimes it, I think people feel like you know well either you're you know putting in like grinding hours of you know this that or the other thing or you're not, and it's like it doesn't really have to be that you know like I mean I was working full time for most of the time that I was learning. And if you, you know, when people always say like, oh, you know, if you're watching a video, if you're not taking notes, then you're wasting your time. And if you're not doing this, you're wasting your time. It's like, you know what, you're better off watching a video and trying to be as focused as you can be while you're making dinner than not watching that same video. You know, you're better off watching a video while like, you know, I have a treadmill with a, a, tabletop that fits over top of the arms of the thing when I want to, you know, watch something while I'm running or, or walking, you know, and you can do that, you know, and you just do, you have to just be flexible and being willing to do what you can do. So if you're somebody who, you know, has a full-time job or you have kids, you know, you're going to have what you have and you, you just work with the time and the space that you have to, to learn. Right. I think, I think what the problem that comes with poker players is they'd rather be playing than studying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When they when they do have the option, it's you know it's the same with me when I go to the golf course. I'd mm-hmm. much rather be on the course sucking <laughs> than than on the range or in the in you know on the on the putting green working on my game. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the one thing that helps is the fact that. 
because I play tournaments and I really don't play cash, you know, it, you can't just like hop on and quick play a tournament. Certainly That's not on ACR. Yeah. You can't. Um, and so you're either playing a day of tournaments or you're not playing a day of tournaments. So if you don't have a full day to get dedicate to it, you know, but you have an hour, you're studying because you don't really have another option unless you're playing sit and goes. Um, and so, you know, which I'll do sometimes, but I'd rather like spend the time learning when I have just piecemeal free time. And then, you know, when I'm playing a tournament, I play a tournament, but I play probably way less than, than almost anybody you ever have on your podcast, I would say, you know, because my time is just super limited. I play a couple of games on a couple of days, two to four days online a month, you know, and then, you know, I'm playing events scattered throughout the year. Um, but way less volume, I'm sure, than so many people that you talk to. Well, before we get to those events, which you did very well in, um, <laughs> I have a quick question. Have you ever taken a picture of your own brain and compared it to a non-poker player's? Uh, well, when you say picture, you mean MRI probably, but I don't have um, <laughs> functional yeah, my, MRI, right? Yeah. So like that's that's what you want is probably like a functional MRI uh, study. But no, I I'm think, just wondering if you would see if you would notice a difference. Nah, I've done an MRI in my brain. It doesn't look too atrophied, so that part's good. Not yet. Yeah, anyway. that's good. But no, I think the, you know where you see the biggest change in brains between people is meditators and non-meditators. That's where there's been the biggest evidence on that is uh, that people who meditate even and they've done some studies even looking at people who just do like a mindfulness meditation course for like, let's say, eight weeks or I don't remember what the time frame was, but not super long. And those people end up having more activation in the parts of their brain that deal with happiness uh, than non-meditators do. So there's there's actually really good, you know, scientific data supporting having a daily meditation practice. That's the only thing that I know of in that. But but you can grow parts of your brain. That's another thing that they've looked at as well. So interesting. Well, I, do, I know a bunch of the top level poker players also practice meditation. So uh, maybe there's some connection there. Yeah, it's, it's certainly very helpful because I think, you know, a lot of the obviously you need to know strategy and and the more the better, but when it comes to execution in game, you know, having your mindset right is at least as important as strategy in my mind. So, meditation is super helpful. Uh, what was it like winning your circuit ring back in 2019? That was awesome. Um, you know, I, I had a strategy of, I thought, well, I, the IO event was overlapping with a Vegas circuit event. So my thought was, hey, I'll go there. And in the days before the pros leave Vegas and come to Iowa, there will be fewer of them involved and maybe I'm more likely to win a ring. That didn't turn out to happen. It turned out that it was in the, the quote, high roller event, which was uh, one of the last events anyway. But, um, but it worked out. It was, uh, that was like, you know, a super exciting time for me because I just I didn't ha set my goal to ever have any particular hardware. That would always was always like, well, that would be really awesome if it ever happened. But you know, I just wanted to to you know play well, maybe make it to a final table or two, um, and you know, can't really control any of that stuff happening. But that was a trip. And then obviously in 2021, you upgrade to the bracelet. I mean. By that point, yeah. was it was it a bucket list item? I mean, you playing more and no, it wasn't at all. Um, my bucket list item at the time that I won the bracelet was just a final table of major. I was like, okay, cool, I won a ring. That was really neat. 
a bucket list item would be the final table a major tournament, whether that's a WSOP event or a WPT, whatever. But um, that that would be um, really really cool because you know it's so hard once even at a final table. You know, I mean, I came in as a short stack and won. You know, but you know, you can come in as the big stack and not win too. So it's you know, there's just a lot of variance, obviously, at that point in the thing. But um, you know, I really did feel like when I went to, made it to the final table of the ladies event, I was like, you know what, my goal here is already done. I wanted to get to the final table of one of these things. I did. If I bust first, and I'm the shortest already, if I bust first, I've lost nothing. This is what I'm what's supposed to happen by the way it is right now. And any extra laddering up is awesome. Um, you know, I'm just gonna see what happens. <laughs> that was a you know pretty tough final table. There were some well-known players there. You know, you said you were the short stack, so you got, you are on a free roll kind of. But yep. I imagine you get to four-handed, three-handed heads up, and all of a sudden the palms are sweating a little bit. They bring out the bracelet. Was there anything like that? Um, you know, I really felt like it felt very otherworldly while we were there. Like at first, it was the first time I had been on a live stream thing. So like in, for the first like 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you know, I mostly just didn't want to do something completely stupid that I'd be embarrassed about for the rest of my life. And like once that 30 minutes had passed, I was like, all right, I had 30 minutes at least of looking half decent. Now, whatever happens, like I'll just, you know, go with it. And I'd I was just trying so hard to just focus on all the different elements in play that I didn't feel super nervous, honestly. Um, you know, and people were, especially the, the women that were at that table were so kind and nice to each other. And you know, it was a really fun group and that, that made it just fun. I was like, you know what? I just want to, I want to enjoy this. And I felt the same way going into the WPT event it was just like, you know, um, these guys are all really good. Um, I want to just have a really good time because who the hell knows if I'll ever be at another WPT final table. Hopefully I will be, but you know, this could be it. And I want to enjoy every minute of it. And I did. So real quick before WPT, where do you keep the bracelet? Oh, I have it on the shelf in my office. Okay. So the, your patients get to see it. Well, I'm a radiologist, so my patients don't get to oh, see that's me, true. <laughs> let alone my bracelet. <laughs> that's true, but, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my office is in my house, so I work out of my house. So I get up at 4.30 in the morning and make a cup of coffee and walk across the hall, and that's my commute. There you go. That's, yeah. That's, that's the dream. Mm -hmm. All right, so this December, you head over to the, the win for the WPT Prime Championship, finish Runner-up for $481,000. And, I mean, 5,430 entrants. That's that's just massive. What's it like navigating through a field like that? It was pretty crazy. Um, you know, I mean, I've been in fields like that. I mean, I've played in the main event several times, but, you know, which has been bigger. But it's still, you know, it's a massive event, obviously. And the thing is that it overshot the, the WPT's expectations by so much that that was part of the issue is that there was sort of this weird bubble thing that would happen. Cause if you busted in, you know, in one of the day ones, you're look you're, you were often looking at like two hours to get back in at which point it was going to be a very different level yeah. <laughs> when you busted out, you know, which is a problem. And so I was on my, I was, it was the fifth bullet that I made it on and I almost didn't fire it because I was like, you know, I busted out and it's like, I was like, man, this is going to be a mess. And I went, to the cage and I was like, Hey, like, 
right now I'd be coming in with like 25 bigs or something. Um, or maybe it was 30 at the time, but about to go to 25. And I was like, what number are you guys on right now for alternates? They're like, well, we're on 600. And I was like, or 700 or something. I was like, what number would I be? They're like 1200. Um, oh my I was God. Like, I was like, holy cow. You know, like whatever it was, it was like hundreds of people away. And I was like, man, this is, this just feels dumb. You know, like I'm just going to throw $1,100 in the trash like right now. But I was like, you know, and there was another event going on, like at some other place, like right across the street where you could win a trip to like some Caribbean place. I was like, maybe I'll go over there and just like fire something at that or do something different. But that involves a whole nother change of venue and everything else. And it's like, you know, it's going to be at least two hours. I'm going to come in with like less than 20 bigs. Um, I think I came in with like 17 bigs or something. And I was like, I don't know. And this, and this guy standing there, it's like, dude, it's like $5 million prize pool. I'm like, yeah, you're right. What the hell? So, yeah, so I registered, take my thing, and I just went to dinner and just like hung out, came back and still wasn't up and hung around for a while. And then eventually got in super short. Um, well, not super short, but, you know, and that's where it's like good to have been doing a lot of late registering online and used to coming in, you know, at that point. Because sometimes you come in, like if you've been waiting too long, people get in and they're just like anxious to double up and like looking, right. looking, looking for a spot where they're just going to ship their chips, you know. And I hung around short for hours. Um, before it, fi- I finally had an opportunity to build the stack up. So, uh, did you watch the live stream back? Oh yeah, yeah. So my wife had been there, and Ape Styles was there too, and uh, and other friends, including a friend uh, Pat who had flown in from uh, California to support me, which was amazing. Um, but yeah, so my wife was obviously super excited, and then the people who were still hanging around at you know, 1230, when we finally finished, you know, we all, I took folks and we went and got drinks and a bite to eat and stuff like that. But then when we got to the room to pack to leave the next day, my wife wanted to, we like, we watched a little bit of it and then we watched them in the morning. And, uh, cause you're curious, especially cause you know, even she, she's there, but she wasn't watching the delay stream. Um, like my friend Pat was, so it's like, you don't, you don't know what's actually happened a lot of times. You want to check <laughs> it out and see what people were saying. Any regrets based on what you saw? Um, you know, I mean, I think there's certain things, that, you know, that I think were clearly mistakes. You know, sometimes, um, you know, you're in the moment and you're doing the best that you can in a reasonable time frame. Um, and also when you can see the hands, obviously, like I had a hand, the hand with Georgie where I had aces um, is a spot where, you know, traditionally with top set, you often will just check back the flop. But I decided um, to just bet small and then. On the turn, I really should have sized up and didn't, um, which kind of forced him to call, which he would have called anyway, um, and the outcome would have been the same. Um, but he would have hit his, you know, the, I only got bailed out because he hit his flush when I made a boat, obviously. So I got kind of, I would have checked back anyway, but, you know, that was a mistake. And then then I also think um, I had a hand um, with Young Un where I had trip kings There's and he had trip kings, and which became a boat. And, you know, right. That was a real cooler. But I mean, like, if you think about it there, you're sort of like, can you get away from that? Like trip Kings with the worst possible kicker? Maybe, you know, I think in retrospect, you know, I think that the hands I've thought through a lot of the hands that were heads up hands, which, you know, you kind of go like, well, really, what's he raising you with here and blah, blah, blah. But you're like, it's so hard when you're heads up and you have two pair um, and there's, you know, yeah, he could beat you with sets, but you're blocking you know, half of those. Um, and there's one straight, you know, it's really hard to get away from, you know, 
things like yeah, I mean, boats, <laughs> all this stuff in your heads up. So. It seemed it seemed like the deck didn't want you to win <laughs> at the end. Given yeah, I got kind of but man, like but I got my share for sure. Like yeah. you know, ace queen against ace queen, and I I you know I win with a flush, you know, and that was nuts, you know. So that shouldn't have been mine either. And then you got to win your flips, you know. And I had my share of those too, so I really can't complain. Um, you know, then it's like who cares if you do any complain anyway? It's just your variance is your mm-hmm. variance, but um. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think there's definitely things that were mainly like sizing mistakes or things where maybe when I was chip lead, I could have been more aggressive in certain spots and just jammed, uh, open jammed some spots and some things like that. But Well, congrats to Steven Song. He won the event $712,000. He'll be on the show shortly. You nice. took home $481,000. Uh, does that change your life at all? I mean, obviously, you're a successful doctor. You got, you know. I don't think you're hurting too badly, but <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the big thing I wanted to do was, uh, was to be able to, I wanted to give, I decided in advance I was going to give 10% of my net winnings to charity. And so I was able to give $30,000, uh, to help Ukraine. Um, so I split that between two charities. Um, and in both instances it was matched. So that 30 turned into 60, oh, wow. uh, which was really cool. So that went like directly towards ambulances in Ukraine, as well as to world central kitchen, which helps supply uh, food and meals to people on the ground. Um, and that felt amazing. And that's, you know, what I kind of want to do going forward is to you know be able to turn, you know, net profits into to charitable donations. And we then be the next Barry Greenstein. Exactly. Exactly. So the, uh, that, that, so that was really awesome. And then planning a trip with my wife somewhere, we're going to figure out where to go, you know, as a little thing for us. And then a lot of it just, you know, went into the bankroll to, you know, the good times won't keep rolling endlessly. So, <laughs> well, I'm now definitely rooting for you anytime I see you in an event. Um, Thank you. let me finish the podcast with some rapid fire questions. If you're ready. Okay. Okay. Um, what was the biggest shot you ever took? Uh, well, I guess it'd be in the main event. But that was several times on that. How did it work out? Any? I have never cashed the main <laughs> event. Not <laughs> once. I've like come close. I've never been the bubble. But uh, my signature has usually been making it to late on day three and busting before the money. What is your most prized possession? Uh, depends on the definition of possession. Yeah. I'm not a very materialistic person, but um, I would say my relationship with my wife, if that's a, but that's not really a possession. Um, but right. I don't think that much to stuff. Yeah. The first thing you would take out in a fire. <laughs> the relationship uh, with the wife, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I take my <laughs> wife out. Um. Uh. Let's see here. What about swaps? You ever swap with anybody? Anybody ever come through with a big piece? Um, not huge, but, you know, I've done swaps, um, with people here and there, especially locally. Um, and then I've sold action to, you know, a bunch of different things. Um, I had sold action to the ladies, uh, event, in fact, so that turned into a decent, uh, thing for those guys as well cool. as me. Um, if you could download one skill instantly, like in the matrix, what would you choose? Um, for poker, it would be. Charts, <laughs> pre and post flop yeah. charts for sure. You just memorize all those charts, huh? You just, just it's do pretty them tough. All. 
Yeah. Well, preflop with preflop academy, you can go pretty far with the preflop stuff. Postflop stuff, it's hard to become a GTO wizard. Yeah, the tree gets pretty branchy yep. at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was your largest non-poker wager? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I don't think it would be super big. Can't think of stuff that I've gambled on all that much. Um, yeah, it's going to be something small, like a hundred bucks on a game or something like that. Nothing. Sports, sports bet. Yeah, probably something like that. All right. What about the uh, the worst job you ever had? Well, I've really only had one job, and that's being a radiologist. Um, you didn't have any like summer jobs as a teen. Well, I worked for my dad, actually, who was an orthodontist, but I wouldn't say it was a bad job. Um, and then once I was in college, I was just full-time into studying college what and you, uh, school. What did you have to do for dad? Was it just paperwork? or? No, I was. A, I assisted him. So he was an orthodontist, so he trained me to be an assistant, hand him instruments, and, and do that kind of stuff. Um, and so I did that uh, to make some money on the side. Man, no wonder you, you were always <laughs> so driven. <laughs> yeah. You were right up there in the front lines from day one. Well, I was pretty lucky to come from a family that was able to support me and, and take care of my school expenses. So I didn't have to try to balance a job with going to college and med school. So that was my good fortune, basically. Any nicknames? Uh, well, I used to wear a hat playing poker. So I had been hat lady for a little bit. But that was a long time ago. Hat um, lady? <laughs> oh, the guy had a goofy poker hat I used to wear. So I was, you know, in the beginning, I was so tight because I was nervous and I didn't know what yeah. I was doing. So I was like, well, this will make me look like I'm kind of fun and splashy. Um, so I picked up this goofy hat when I was up at the, the Tropicana. And it, but that was a long time ago. I don't think I have any nicknames now that I am aware of anyway. I'm just laughing at the complete unoriginality unorig- of Hat Lady. <laughs> <laughs> which is better than Cat Lady, which I'm not. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You just hoard a bunch of hats. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> drowning in hats at your house. Um, yeah. Headphones off the table, yes or no? I don't wear headphones on the table typically, no. I, you know, I very much am a believer in the importance of um, tells and people. Um, I'm a big Beyond Tells fan. Uh, Blake Eastman's work is really great, and that's been very helpful to me. Um, and you know, you gotta be paying attention. I think that that's one of the biggest edges to be had right now is that, you know, with TikTok and all the rest of this stuff, people can't pay attention to what's happening at the table for like five seconds at a time. A lot of people. So if you're, if you just stop at any point and ask somebody, Hey, what happened last hand? Like most people have no idea. They're not <laughs> paying that much attention if they weren't in the hand. So, you know, trying to work on your focus and, um, paying attention at the table, um, and music just distracts me. I'm sure for some people, it probably gets them in a zone and keeps them focused. It doesn't work that way for me. But Do you have a favorite musician or band? Um, I'd say lots of different. Um, I like a lot of different folk stuff. I like a lot of stuff from 60s and 70s um, kind of stuff. And then my, my wife tries to get me a little more current. I'm starting to become old, with like, like in 60s and 70s stuff. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I like all kinds of different uh, stuff. If you could name the entertainment for the Super Bowl halftime show, who would you choose? Oh, man. And you do Does not it... have to please people. <laughs> <It's for you. laughs> oh, wow. Well, I mean, it would probably be like 
the Grateful Dead or somebody, because I don't care if anybody else liked it, but that you know, bring Jerry back and bring them all out. And, and oh, so not, have, so not, have with, not with John Mayer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, who was your celebrity crush growing up? Oh, and I don't know. I mean, there was a, you know, when you're like sixth or seventh grade, you're like into like the boy band kind of stuff. I think that was like so long ago in my past. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's tough. Okay. Um, are you superstitious at all? Not really. No, I used to be a little bit when I was playing pool, like on certain things, but for poker, I'm really not like I do believe in the power of routines, but not because I think there's like magic involved in it. It's just that I I know that having routines is, you know, helpful to put you in a good frame of mind, but not outside of that. Uh, Do you have a celebrity doppelganger or growing up that people tell you you look like somebody? No, well, that's why I cut my hair short. So now I get Tig Notaro. Um, a little bit, I get Trinity from The Matrix. Um, oh, wow. And, Carrie Ann Moss, Tig Notaro. Yeah, that's a great one to have. I'll take Carrie Ann Moss <laughs> lookalike anytime. But, um, you don't like Tig? Tig's hilarious. No, Tig's, Tig, I love Tig, too. She's great. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I dressed up as Trinity for Halloween a bunch of times. Um, but I think those are the two main doppelganger things I get. Those are cool. Those are cool. Uh, where's the most beautiful place you've ever seen in person? Well, I'll say the Bahamas, where I just got back from, was unbelievable. I've never seen so many different colors of blue in the water. But um, I took a trip to Spain with my wife a couple years ago, and I set us up to go hiking in the Pyrenees at this place, which was ridiculous. We were staying for like $100 a night in this like incredible place and you looked out and you felt like you were in the scene of like Heidi the musical or something (laughs) we did this 12 mile hike up this unbelievably gorgeous valley that just like a path that went along this like babbling brook and up into the mountains and it was just spectacular Uh, so that was gorgeous um, you lost but, me at 12 miles. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we were we were very happy. We had a hot tub in our room to soak in when we got back. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was something. So I've been, I've been there's so many amazing places in the world that are just so beautiful in different ways. But uh, I definitely recommend the Bahamas. Like I might check out PCA next year because uh, that that was something else. Yeah, I had many many January spent at the PCA, and you know it's a little chilly, but you know, if you catch it on the right day, it's nice. A little bit chilly? A little chilly. In like cold temperature-wise? Really? Yeah, you, it could drop a little bit, but not not, not too bad. Fair enough. I'm sure, I'm sure for you in Maryland, it's very Well, it was warm. like <laughs> high 70s when we were just there. So it was, wasn't, hey, we weren't hot, but it was yeah. like, it was nice because you weren't like running around sweating all the time. It was just kind of comfy. Do you have any phobias? Um... Only maybe jellyfish. Um, like, I'm not a fan. I mean, I'm not, it's not so phobic. Like, I can't go out of my house if I'm worried about jellyfish. But um, I went, um, I've done a bunch of scuba diving, and I had one, like, slight almost panic attack, realizing I was kind of, like, surrounded by jellyfish everywhere. Um, that, yeah. that was weird. Um, but, like, I'm fine with sharks. <laughs> but the jellyfish, <laughs> for some reason, just freak me out. They're hard to see. It would have been weird if you'd said heights. Um, uh, yeah, that wouldn't have been good. Do you collect anything? Uh, so you're not materialistic. Yeah, do you have not like really. a collection of anything. 
No, no. I like getting rid of things. That's oh. that's a hobby. Collects purging. <laughs> exactly. All right. Do you like telling people that you play poker? Um. Well, not not necessarily. I guess I would say. Um. I mean, <laughs> I, I had. Say, a, it depends on what kind of social circles you're running in, you know. I mean, I don't run around talking about myself too much or try not to anyway but i had somebody i had to give a deposition i do some medical malpractice legal work uh, defense work and i had um i was giving a deposition and had an attorney who had googled me and was trying to bring poker into the deposition as basically <laughs> trying to imply that i was not a trustworthy person because part of poker is bluffing and, is, and isn't bluffing lying and uh so we had to go round and round on that one uh for a little bit till we sorted that out that's amazing. Yeah, so it's kind of kind of crazy. But. Your Honor, she's a liar. I saw her once. Check she bluffed on a draw. It was a sem- It was a semi lie. If you if you wanted right. to technically, all she had was a gut shot. It was all BS. <laughs> but uh, you know, but no, I mean, I think it's you know, people outside of poker don't understand poker for sure, and um, you know, people like you know, my own parents. I mean, had to like understand that it's not like you're this gambling addict and you're, you know, going to, you're on this slippery slope and you're going to be broke and destitute. So it's, uh, having a couple decent wins helps alleviate people's fears about that stuff. We end the podcast the same way every time with a question from the random question generator. All right. Because, you know, those questions weren't random enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have any unusual traditions? Unusual traditions. Um, no, not really. My wife converted to Judaism, so we started uh, paying more attention to some of the Jewish holidays than I had before. But, um, yeah, not really. I'm so boring. You can do another one if you want. Sure. Okay. What talent? We, well, we already did something similar to that. Um, oh, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I wanted to be a mother, an astronaut, and a doctor all right well so i didn't i became an ant and a skydiver and a doctor so that's about to say like skydiving is pretty close to after being an astronaut i mean it's about as close as like you can guarantee you can get (laughs) (laughs) astronauts pretty hard to hit although i had one very brief thing that was funny which was um we were doing the 300 way world records in arizona and there was a woman who was on the load who was a real astronaut she had been uh, one of the space shuttle astronauts um, and there was a guy doing the announcing as we were all coming into land at various times. And I happened to be one of the first people landing and I landed and I hear this guy, Dusty saying, give her a big round of applause, lady of gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen for Mary Ellen Weber, the astronaut. And I turned <laughs> and I was like, I just like bowed. <laughs> I was like, yeah. that was my five minutes of fame as an astronaut. And yeah, that was Mistaken it. Identity. <laughs> exactly. I'll take it. That's awesome. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing the stories. This was really fun talking to you. That's it. That is the show. Thank you once again to Laura for sharing the stories. She wanted to shout out Preflop Academy and BBZ Poker Training. So be sure to check those out if you want to learn like she does. You can find her on Twitter at Eisen009. And you can find us on Twitter at CardPlayerMedia. Don't forget to subscribe, like, review, and all the other good stuff. Until next time, thanks for listening.